turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. We have been in a sermon series in the book of Acts for about 42 years now, I think. But we are beginning to approach the end of the book of Acts. Acts 21, begin here in a moment in verse 27. Before I read the scriptures, let's pray and ask guidance in understanding it. Lord, we do come to you because this is your word, because you are the one who gave it, because you are the one who inspired the human writers and carried them along and gave them the words. We know that ultimately... You are the one who is able to make it clear to us, to illumine it for us. And so we ask that this morning. We need a great deal from you this morning. We need to be convicted of sin. We need to be comforted. We need to know Jesus Christ. We need to know how to live as those who do know Jesus Christ. And amazingly enough, we need to know that we are needy. And so we need your word to speak to us this morning. And so we come to you asking you to make it happen, to bring it uh, to us, to not just to our ears, but past our ears, not just to our minds, but past our minds, bringing it home to our hearts, that it would affect who we are and how we think and how we live and how we talk. That we would be changed because we were here this morning and your word had its effect on us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have a long passage before us, and if you've been here before, you know that one of the things I will frequently do with these longer texts is stop and comment along the way. And I will do that this morning as well. As we take portions of this, I will stop and offer some guidance and some insight to help us follow it. So let's begin now in Acts 21, beginning in verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And I'll stop right now and remind us of what's going on here. Last time we saw that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, some of the leaders of the Jerusalem church came to him. And they had for him an idea, a suggestion. You see, there were these rumors going about that Paul was anti Jewish, that he was against the law of Moses, that he was opposed to the temple, that he despised Judaism. You remember James and the other elders said, one of the things you might do is just go participate in a public act of Jewishness. Now, he'd been traveling in Gentile lands, and so before he could do that, he had to purify himself ceremonially. And that was a seven-day process. And so essentially, when he agreed to this, word leaked out that in seven days... This, this guy from Tarsus, this Paul, this one whom all the controversy surrounds, is going to show up at the temple. And so his detractors, his opponents, they set the clock. They marked it on their calendars. They began to count down the seven days until Paul would show up at the temple. And they're ready and waiting for him when he arrives. And that's what's going on here. So we see there these Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. 
Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. You know, the, sermon, the title of this sermon is When the Truth Does Not Matter, and I apologize for the typo in the bulletin, I didn't catch that. When the Truth Does Not Matter is the title of this sermon, and we see right here a case of the truth not mattering. The people not caring about what is true. You see what Luke is pointing out here. That from the get-go, the accusations, the charges against Paul are not based in reality. That the people who are opposing him don't care a hoot about the truth. They've seen Paul walking around in Jerusalem with Trophimus, this Greek, this Gentile, And they're just going to go ahead and assume that he must have taken him into the temple and violated the temple law. The truth does not matter. You know, this is a problem for us since we are called to be men and women of the truth, proclaimers of the truth, adherents to the truth, hopeful that the truth will set us free. In fact, as Christians... We are named after the one who claimed to be the truth. So what do we do when the truth doesn't matter? What do we do when the people around us don't care a hoot about the truth? What do we do when there are rumors spun against us? When, when the, the lie is more interesting and exciting than the facts... And it is what is talked about and it is what is shared and spread. How should we respond? But we see here in Paul's life an example of this happening to him. He's headed to the temple to pay a tribute, to pay a tribute to the temple. And yet he's accused of despising the temple. He circumcised Timothy, we saw earlier in the book of Acts, but he's accused of despising circumcision. Here now he's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple when all he's done is just go to the marketplace with that Gentile. You know, in the last 20 years, we have seen this same sort of thing happening frequently in our own society, in our own culture. If someone would dare to take a position that is not popular with the, with the uh, 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 trends of our culture, they are blasted without any regard for the truth. So that perhaps you may recall, it's what, 15, 18 years ago now, that a a, a baker dared to say, I'm not sure I want to make a cake to celebrate that wedding. And he was ripped and blasted as one who hates people, as a homophobe, as a gay hater. And he didn't say, I hate gays and I hate homosexuals. I'm just not sure we should be celebrating. I'm not sure I want to be a part of rejoicing in an illicit, unsanctioned, ungodly wedding. But there's no room for that nuance. There's no room for that truth. The lie that is propagated is that he hates all gays. We see even this past week as the Supreme Court wrestled with issues about how should worship be handled in the midst of a pandemic. People spread quickly untrue things on both sides, sadly, of the issue. 
Because it's not about truth, it's about winning. We are called to be a people of the truth. We're called to leave the winning up to the one who's already won. And so we are going to see that Paul does that. He proclaims the truth. We're picking up in verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune. Uh, a, a tribune is a, a Roman, high-ranking Roman uh, off, uh, military officer. A word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now I want to stop for just a moment. That's a little interesting scenario, isn't it? Paul's getting beaten. He's being held. They've got him, four guys, one on each limb. They're stretching him out, and they're beating him there in the te- in the outer, just outside the temple. And when the police arrive, Paul goes, oh, good, the cops, I'm saved, and they arrest him. They arrest the one being beaten, as if he jaywalked in front of the clubs, you know, as if he's the one that stepped in front of those fists, as if he were at fault. And again, there is this tendency for us to always assume that where there is smoke, there must be fire. But we forget that sometimes where there is smoke, there are arsonists, others who are setting the fires. We must be careful not to be like these people, not to assume that the one around whom the controversy is focused must be the source of the controversy must be at fault. And it's interesting, later, we won't get there this week, but next week we will uh, see how um, the same tribune is going to spin all of this as though he stepped in and rescued Paul. He arrested arrested Paul is what he did. We pick up there. Uh, 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 Verse 33 again, the tribune came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He, the tribune, inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And as Paul, sorry, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you. And he, this is the tribune, said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Stop there real quickly and comment on this. Um, the language of most of the commoners in Jerusalem would have been Aramaic, a Semitic language, a, a, a dialect, if you will, of, of Hebrew. Okay, Um, it's a a Semitic language, and the fact that Paul now speaks in Greek and rather refined in Greek, showing some signs of education, this Roman official, a Greek in the eastern half of the empire, Greek was the lingua franca. It was the language spoken everywhere. It was then kind of what English is today in terms of diplomatic and business language. And when he spoke it, the, the official was a little surprised. 
So who is this? You are you not the Egyptian, the assassin? Um, this is an interesting little story. So it was not uncommon that in that a, a charismatic um, a leader could stir up a following in Jerusalem. And if he could convince enough people that if you follow me, I will lead you to victory. We will throw off the Romans. We will throw off our overlords and I will save you. And apparently there was an Egyptian who had come and done just that. In fact, uh, 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 non-biblical historians, secular historians of the time uh, recount the tale of this Egyptian and his leading a rebellion in Jerusalem. And when the rebellion was uh, quashed by the Romans, he slipped away and was not immediately found. And so now there is this assumption that Paul must be him. The word assassins there in the, in the uh, Greek is uh, sicario, literally dagger men. They had these short little knives, these short little daggers. They could hide under their cloaks. They could get up close to somebody. They could pull it out and they could kill them, assassin them, dagger men. And Paul is faced with this right here going, well, you've arrested me. Uh, I've tried to tell my story to the Jews. They don't care. You're accusing me of being a dagger man. That sounds a lot cooler than what I really am. So, yeah, let's go with that. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the dagger men. I'm one of the Sicario. I'm one of the assassins. But that is not what Paul does. Rather, Paul continues in the truth. He continues to try to explain who he is. And in verse 39, we see that. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in uh, Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Tarsus was a, a prominent city, not quite on the level of Rome or Alexandria or, or, or Antioch, but close. It was a major important city back then. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. Now remember, he's got soldiers there holding back the crowds, guarding him. Okay, And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. It's unlikely he was speaking Hebrew as we know it today, but rather a, a, a probably Aramaic, uh, that Semitic dialect I mentioned Earlier, It's a linguistic cousin of Hebrew. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Look, I'm one of you. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now, Paul is speaking the truth. But for sure, he is choosing those true things which might help his argument. I'm going to guess there were a lot of details Paul could have offered about his past. He's not a young man at this point. Many things have happened in his life. He could have told them any number of different stories. You know how it goes. We were this weekend with you know, some of the nieces and nephews. We saw some people. It's amazing how the young ones in particular, they can't leave any detail out of a story. They, got to tell you, they go to tell you about their cat and the, how it caught a mouse, but they have to tell you about the phase of the moon and what the temperature was and what they were wearing. And blah. But Paul sorts through all those details, and he picks out some truth that might help his argument. I'm one of you. Yes, yes, I'm from Asia. Yes, I'm from Tarsus, but I grew up here. 
<clears throat> I'm not like those diaspora Jews that just decide to live in comfort in Alexandria, or they just go live in comfort in Corinth. Yeah, I, I'm with you guys. We came back. This is the promised land. We're gonna, it's a hard scrabble life, but we're going to do it right here in the promised land in Jerusalem. And I'm one of you. I made that call. I moved back here so I could be raised here, so that I could go to Harvard. Gamaliel, we may not recognize that name today, but he was the leading rabbi of the time. He was the Harvard of his day. He was the the most reputable, most famous of all of the rabbis in Jerusalem. And what Paul is doing is winning over some in the crowd. There are some out there who maybe have held back judgment on Paul and are looking and going, oh, honey, I didn't, Gamaliel, that's impressive. (laughs) That's serious right there. I didn't know that. And he's beginning to win a few of them over. We pick up in verse 4. I persecuted this way to the dead. Remember, that's a, a term for Christianity. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Notice how Paul's using the Jewish legal format to win his case. The law of Moses said that all things need to be established by two or three witnesses. And he says, not only do I have witnesses to how, how uh, zealous I was for Judaism, but the witnesses that can speak in, in, for my zeal for Judaism are the very ones now accusing me. These right here now accusing me can testify to the fact that I once zealously persecuted Christians. Uh, uh, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Again, there are increasing number of positive, supportive murmurs in the crowd. People, oh, that's right, I've heard of this guy. That, I knew this name rang a bell. This is the guy. He was well known for being quite the Christian hunter. I mean, he was like the Orkin man against Christians. He could stamp out those pests. He could exterminate them and find them where they were. Paul continues in verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. If you've never been in the Middle East around noon... Let me just tell you this, the sun is bright and hot and intense. And for any light to have outshone the sun at noon in the Middle East was indeed a brilliant and blinding light. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now the murmurs in the crowd are changing. Jesus of Nazareth, we killed him. I was there. I saw him die. How could he meet Paul on the road to Damascus? Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Again, Paul's establishing there are witnesses to everything he said. 
And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Again, Paul is making his case before the court of public opinion, and before the Jewish elders. Ananias came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And the murmurs that had begun to sway in Paul's favor now begin to sway back against him. If you were that zealous for the law, if you were that good a Pharisee, if you were that well trained by Gamaliel... Why do you need to be baptized and to repent of your sins? What sins do you have to repent of? And Paul is beginning to set the stage for revealing to them that he repented of the sin of unbelief. That he's turned to the very one he once persecuted. Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, who's him here? Reminder, this is Jesus. This is the same one he saw on the road to Damascus. So now all of a sudden the crowd is really beginning to question this guy. You telling me that the one we killed, the one we opposed because he claimed that he was going to replace this temple, he met with you in the temple? Come on. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I am prison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I, was, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, let's just pause there for a moment. It's an interesting story. I always find it really fascinating when the saints of the scriptures argue with God. God has just said, get out of Jerusalem. They're not going to listen. And Paul is making the argument, oh, but they'll listen to me. Look at my credentials. I mean, I was one of them. I was a Pharisee of the, as if Jesus didn't know these things. You know, Jesus, if I just informed you, I, you know, you, you, you missed out on that um, you know, omniscience, that all-knowing aspect of the deity. I, I got lost in translation when you became a human being, and I just need to fill you in here and convince you that I can be the one who brings the message to the Jews. But part of what Paul is doing here is sharing with the crowd in front of him, I didn't abandon you guys. It's not that I didn't care about you. This is where I wanted to work. This was the mission field to which I wanted to go. I wanted to be the one to harvest among you. But God had other plans for me. 
I didn't leave because I don't love Jews. I didn't leave because I hate the temple. I left because God had other plans for me. And then in verse 21, and he said to me, this is Jesus, go and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up into this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. We were buying this. We were willing to listen. We were willing to give him his opportunity to speak. But there's no way the God who met with him in this temple would send him to the Gentiles. That's inconceivable. And we know now that he is a liar. For our God would never send someone to the Gentiles. We must always be careful. Anytime we presume to know who God will go seek out and who he will not. For when we decide that God seeks out these kinds of people, but not those kind, we have made our gods small, provincial, parochial, narrow, interested in just us. God must really like white guys who live in the middle class, have got a college degree, and shave their head. And the rest of y'all are in trouble. That's the view they took here. And they did not realize that the God who was willing and desirous and working to save them had a bigger plan to include others so that you and I might be saved. Had God not worked against the, 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 the parochial view of these people back then, you and I would not be here today. and We would be lost. Who is out there tomorrow that God will work to save? Those we can't foresee those we can't imagine coming to know the Lord, those that we think, oh, we shouldn't even bother sharing the gospel with them because there's no way they're going to ever change their mind. They took a parochial, small view of God. We must always remember, there's nothing wrong with saying that Jesus is my Lord or our Lord so long as we also remember he is the Lord over all, not just us. We keep reading verse 23, and they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. We're going to beat the truth out of you, Paul to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, 
I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, and he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. It's interesting how this closes out, isn't it? Because you may recall that it was just a short time ago in Acts 21.13 that Paul said, you know, I'm, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem even if I must die in Jerusalem. If I, if I have to go up there and, and die for the name of the Lord Jesus, well, I'm willing to do that. And you might scratch your head and go, really, Paul? You're willing to die for Jesus, but you can't take a, a, a whooping? Now you're going to pull out the citizenship card? You're going you're to play that? What's going on here? Let's take a look at some of this stuff a little more carefully. First of all, you notice in the outline there in the bulletin, if you're following along on page 10 in the outline there, the points seem a little contradictory, don't they? But I want us to look at how this unfolds. You know, one of the things we've got to learn to do as Christians is tell the truth. Speak the truth. Declare the one who is the truth. Paul sets about trying to tell them the truth. And we're going to see he gets cut off here. So we don't get the fullness of his message in this text. But we're going to see in future courtroom scenes, very similar to this one, where he gets to share more fully his message. And when we get to those chapters, we will look more fully at his message But let me say this right now. Paul was trying to declare Jesus. He's, it feels a little bit like he's just talking about himself. Oh, I was dry, I I used to be this guy, and I used to have these credentials, and I did this, and I was once this, and then I was going to Damascus, and this happened, and then I was blind, and I went to, uh, it it feels a little Paul-centric. But remember, he gets cut off. For what we see in the future chapters of Acts, what we see in the other courtroom scenes, is that what comes next after that, after he talked, is, this happened to me, and now that I know Jesus, let me tell you about him. And one of the things I would encourage us to remember to do is to look for ways to pivot to Jesus. You know, I've been working with you. I've been our, my booth and your booth. We're side by side, and, and we've been side by side for years. And, you know, I, I don't ever hear you swear, or at least you don't ever. You know, you're not ever cussing, using the Lord's name in vain like everybody. Why not? Are you prepared to answer that question in light of who Jesus is? Why would I use Jesus' name as a swear word? He saved me. Why would I use that as a swear word? Can you pivot to Jesus? Can you talk about it? You know, uh, what do you you think about this whole gay marriage thing? What do you care what I think? I'm Scott Shaw. Who cares what Scott Shaw thinks about your sex life? I have no authority, no standing, no position, no right to make any declaration about your sex life. one who created us sure does. And he did have some things to say about the way he made us. But, even if you're a run afoul of those, there's Jesus. Even if you 
are not living a pure life, let me tell you about Jesus. That's where Paul was headed with this. And he got cut off before he could get there. We're going to come back in future weeks and talk more about that in some detail. Tell the truth. And tell about the one who is the truth. But you've got to expect rejection. Jesus himself said that if they hate the teacher, how much more will they hate his disciples? Jesus warned his disciples. He warns us that rejection is part of being a Christian. If your message is never rejected, if it is never scoffed at, if it is never mocked, you probably aren't telling it correctly. Because you're probably not talking about Jesus. And the craziness that God would become a human being. And the insanity that one could rise from the dead. These things don't set well with the ear of humanity. And when you talk about them, you're going to be mocked. And you're going to be rejected. Tell the truth. Expect the rejection. So what do you do? When you've told the truth and you are rejected, as what happened to Paul here, what do you do? Because in our human nature, there is this tendency to pack it up at that point. I tried. I tried to tell them. I was speaking the truth. They don't want to hear it. You don't understand. They've got their fingers in their ears, and they have no interest in knowing what Jesus has done. But I'll remind you of this. And yes, to be sure, Jesus himself does warn us about throwing pearls before swine. There is a time to stop, to put your efforts somewhere else. But boy, if you're going to err, err to the side of telling it too often. Err to the side of too much grace. Err to the side of repeating the message over and over and over again. For when we do otherwise, when we say it is beneath me to repeat myself, it is beneath me to try again with you, we are in effect saying that as far as I'm concerned, to hell with that person. Now praise God in his sovereign mercy and grace, he can bring another one into their life to share the gospel with them. You don't have the ability to condemn anybody to hell. But... We do effectively take that mindset and that attitude when we say, I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm not going to say it over again. I did it once. They don't get a chance to hear it again. We are saying, if it were up to me, to hell with them. That's the seriousness of the gospel. That's the seriousness of what's at stake. And so what do we see Paul do? Try again. Tell the truth again. Let me explain again. Let me have another chance in front of the crowd. Let me try again. And what we're going to see in the future court, he's going to do the Roman officials over and over and over again. Let me explain it again. Let me tell you the truth again. I'm, going to, I'm saying in the notes there, tell the truth. Expect rejection. Turn right around and tell the truth again. Just do it again. And then I say, expect reception. Expect reception. And you're at this point going, really? Where do we see that, Pastor? Where is Paul's message received here? 
Where is there anyone who responds positively to what Paul has to say? And I'm going to tell you that it's right here, right now. That the Lord used this. The Holy Spirit took this, laid it upon the heart of Luke to write it, to record it. It's not that the crowds flocked to the forward, you know, forward in the sanctuary, and they all came to the altar, and they're all, you know, coming forward, and we're, everybody's singing just as I am, and, and boom, we have this big conversion in that moment. But many have received the Lord Jesus in the century since because this message was repeated over and over and over again. Luke himself is writing to Theophilus to convince this young believer to stick with Christianity. And the story for Theophilus, Luke is writing it hoping, look, Theophilus, see, it's not Paul who's crazy and irrational here. It's the response to Paul that's crazy and irrational here. And we don't know, but the Lord used this in, in, in Theophilus' life and in Luke's life and in Timothy as he witnessed this, as he would one day face his own persecution. We don't know how the Lord is using these things. It's why he says in Isaiah through the prophet, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's easy to give up. It's easy to stop talking about Jesus. It's easy to stop praying for loved ones. It's easy to stop sharing the gospel because we don't see it at work. But what we see here in the way that Luke captures this is a reminder to us. It's not about what we see. It's about what the Lord is doing. It's not about what we said. It's about what he said. It's not about our words, but his word. And when we tell the truth, when we stand up for Jesus, when we pivot our conversations to him, that word is used and it accomplishes the purpose for which God put it out there. Because it's his word, not ours. Because it's his spirit at work. You know, at the end there, I say, don't expect to see it. But I really should say this. Don't expect to see it in this life. Don't expect to see it in this life. But know that one day, there will be a testimony to the word of God that you shared. There will be an eternity, those who can say, because you were faithful. Because you proclaimed the glory of the Savior. Because you were gracious in the face of an ungracious response. The Lord used that 
The Spirit worked through that. Jesus came to me because of that. What a golden opportunity we have to tell the truth. Even when it seems like the truth doesn't matter, even when it seems like nobody cares about the truth, we're called to proclaim it faithfully. Let's pray. Jesus, give us your strength, your endurance, your uh, 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 stamina to continue to declare your truth. And Lord, when it seems like others don't care about the truth, let us always cling to it. Let us continue to hold to who you are and what you have done, to continue to proclaim who you are and what you have done, to continue to bask in who you are and what you have done. And as we hold to these things and as we proclaim these things, we ask that you would use them for your purposes, that you would fulfill the promise you made to Isaiah, that these things would not return empty, that your word will accomplish its purpose. Let it accomplish that in us today. Let it be accomplished through us in the days to come, that we might be those who lift up your word and who declare that Jesus brings salvation to all who believe in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.